Just a note before I start. If you're a person of color, you don't have to listen to this, but you can if you want. Or share it with white friends if you think it might relieve you some of the burden of explaining. Saturday, August 26th, I took to the streets of San Francisco with thousands of others to shut down a planned white supremacist rally. I thought a lot about how I wanted to show up. Where do I stand on violence? How afraid do I feel? What do I think about Antifa? All these questions lingering after the deadly violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, just a couple of weeks before. While I was out riding the edges of my comfort zone, I thought about how much privilege went into my entire thought process and about how sheltered and protected I've been. I've gone to marches that were kind of organized, you know? Uh Like I've never, this is a little, yeah. This is is the sort of thing that I seem to find myself at all the time, which is just like random acts of violence happening and like suddenly being in a fight. Luckily, Uh, I met some more experienced demonstrators and I was able to learn more about what hitting the streets meant to them. While trying to find access to the area around Alamo Square Park, which had been shut down and blocked by the police after word got out that the white supremacist group was going to move their demonstration there at the last minute, I spoke with this woman as we walked up Fell Street. We moved through relative Saturday morning calm before you hear the sound of chanting as we ascended towards the large crowd of counter-protesters we'd been looking for. I'm very good at getting right in it and then running off. Um, (laughs) Why do you end up running off? What do you think happens? Um, Well, because I'm not a citizen. I am on a list, I know that. And every time I enter the country, I have difficulties being like screened and it's really annoying. So I just don't want to, I want to be right in it and I will do whatever I need to do, but I don't want to get arrested. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I will be. I don't think that like a dance party in Dolores Park does shit all like, You'd be doing that anyway. Basically, you want to do what you normally do, but now you're pretending that it's like got this like extra veil of like doing, being a social justice warrior. It's like no, right. you're you're just you're actually doing kind of the wrong thing, which is like leaning towards individualism rather than collectivism. Oh, uh, hmm. yeah. What I mean, what do you think works about this kind of direct action? Um. This as in what we're trying to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> this lovely sunny walk that we're doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is direct action. <laughs> so I think, um, like, having been to, like, all of the Berkeley protests and having gone to, like, the inauguration protest and having been part of the Occupy movement in London, I think there's a lot about, like, just the importance of showing up and, like, making it very clear with numbers that you don't think there's any space for those conversations to be happening. Uh, and that's why I that's why I believe in direct action above all else because I just think you need you need to show up. Even if you're scared, even like it doesn't matter. You can like be at the back of things, but just be there. And like bear witness, make sure that like like if you're a lawyer, join the NLG. Like find ways to support your communities by showing up. agree with any one person or group's particular view or message, 
but the main question is, how are you showing up? One way of showing up, and one I think that's vitally important, is by looking inward. The fight against the violence of white supremacy is never finished, at least not for now, not likely in my lifetime. In light of the presidency of Donald Trump and the recent emboldening of American hate groups, it seems an important time to circle back to the very first episode of the show, Seeing White. Because I think even the most non-racist white folks I know struggle with what white privilege and white supremacy really mean. We can see it clearly in neo-Nazis, but what about in our culture at large, in our institutions, and in ourselves? I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you. My friend Christine Hutchison is a therapist, writer, and PhD candidate, and she also identifies as a progressive feminist Christian. Together, we've talked a lot about our privilege and how to catch our blind spots. Shortly after the rallies and killing in Charlottesville this past month, she wrote this post. I keep thinking about the 20-year-old young white man who was a part of the Charlottesville mob who, in response to the photo of him mid-yell that's been making the rounds, said, I'm not the angry racist they see. This is one of the bigger lies of whiteness, that our own self-perceived goodness trumps the actual effect of our action and inaction in the world. I'm sure this young man feels displaced, desperate, afraid, all real feelings, but not valid feelings, because he hasn't comprehended yet that his sense of persecution is actually just narcissistic injury. He feels endangered, and he can't see that he is the danger. As much as I want to distance myself from this young man, I understand him. I am also used to the immense, undeserved economic, educational, and quotidian benefits that have come with whiteness. I've never known a world without these benefits, and I'm scared of what equality will mean for me in my life. When I look at my budget and the small portion that goes to anti-racist activism, part of me thinks of that money as mine and I want it back. The field of psychology desperately needs people of color, and whenever they are finally able to enter the field in significant numbers, should the APA and graduate training programs ever make this actually possible, it will mean fewer job prospects for me. I get it. I get the feeling of wanting to appear not racist while not really wanting anything to change or feeling wrongly persecuted at the change that is happening. We have a chance this week, white friends, to see ourselves in this ugly mirror, to acknowledge to each other that a part of us however small, agrees with these angry white terrorists. We get to name with each other what we will lose personally in a world that is more just and equal. When we do that, we will be free to live and act out of our actual values.
To continue to drop into this self-reflection, I want to share some parts of my interview with Zara Zimbardo for the Seeing White episode. I didn't get to include so much of what she had shared, so here's a bit more. Zara is a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she's also one of the founders of the White Noise Collective, a nonprofit that offers resources to other white folks who want to work on their relationship to race and also the intersection of race and gender. That for people who inhabit a privileged position, that there's this all kinds of othering that happens, but it's like, oh, that's a problem for those people over there. Mm-hmm. I should care about it, but I don't, or I can't really feel it, or it seems like abstract, or it's a buzzkill. How to shift that to be like, actually, it has everything to do with you, right? That racism is about white people. Whiteness is a racialized identity. White supremacy is the problem in this country and has been. So then there's what comes up for us when we're faced with this information. It's not hard to have compassion for the very predictable responses of distancing. Mm -hmm. You know, like this has nothing to do with me. It was a long time ago. Because I think it is so destabilizing to a sense of self, Mm -hmm. certainly to the ego, but a sense of self as a good person. You know, to really look at, like, I, could, as a white person, can be reproducing and perpetuating harm in all kinds of ways, despite my very best intentions, and despite all the work I've done in my life. And this system, which is based on violence, which is based on pillage, which is based on dehumanization, structurally benefits me and benefits my white friends and my white relatives is, you know, on some level, I mean, that can be a really unbearable, you know, unbearable realizations to come to grips with and to digest, right? And so there's very predictable patterns. They're so predictable, like they've been written about in books and literature, (laughs) you know, with examples, you know, but of denial or dismissiveness or distancing or minimizing all of which can be tremendously harmful to people of color through this process of surfacing and learning and politicizing, you know, that that is a space where white people can really hold each other accountable, help each other learn, hold space for each other. white people do need spaces to really feel heartbreak like really let your heart be broken you know white numbness is part of what you know a part of what helps hold this system in place like it needs to be smashed or I could say dissolved thought <laughs> use a gentler word you know it needs to be dismantled yeah. you know it is not and should not be the work or the burden of people of color to constantly have to be educating white people that white people need to do their own homework you know which isn't like one reading or one afternoon or weekend long diversity workshop you know oftentimes that's how it's framed it's kind of thingified like oh this one diversity workshop you know but that's really the beginning of conversation and ongoing self-reflection which is really unending it's really important to have for white people who are you know becoming more conscious in different ways um, and also wanting to show up in the world in different ways to have 
different types of ongoing spaces or accountable relationships to be able to keep exploring things as they come up, you know, personally, politically, in response to current events or something like interpersonal that went on, you know, mm -hmm. um, so that it's not becoming these layers of stagnant, festering silence. There's a really important term uh, when we talk about racism and whiteness, and it's white fragility. It was coined by Dr. Robin DiAngelo, and it refers to a phenomenon that's at the crux of why it can be so difficult for us as white people to dive deep into our understanding of racism and our relationship to it. White fragility isn't saying that white people are less human or less capable or somehow inherently weaker. But when it comes to sustained thinking about race and understanding of racism, white people are structurally weaker. They, we have had far less practice in sustained engagement in, term, in all kinds of ways, <laughs> intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, you know, psychologically. And so um, it's a muscle to develop, to get stronger, to be able to stay present, stay present with strong emotions that come up and not basically implode, freak out, spew toxic <laughs> crap onto other people or just like run out of the room. White fragility is helpful to name because oftentimes, you know, becoming aware of racism or being in a heated racial dynamic for like five minutes will be like four minutes too much <laughs> for white people, right? Because there is this fragility. There's just a lack of practice of being present in a nuanced and deep, bringing full human self <laughs> um, to this. And so there's all kinds of predictable reactions and defensiveness and knowing that this will arise can help us think about what are different ways to support white people in becoming stronger, more conscious, aware people <laughs> in general, and you know perhaps allies in racial justice movements and anti-racism mm -hmm. efforts, mm -hmm. you know, which is a practice like you know any other practice that we mm -hmm. can get strong at, but looking at the ways that white privilege can blind and numb us and, you know, make us ignorant. I'm not saying that to be shaming, but ignorant meaning like freedom to ignore. Like you do not need to think about race most of the time to feel the ways that, you know, we walk through the world with this aura of relative, you know, invulnerability. When a cop pulls me over, you know, I feel this force field surround me of white femaleness and my voice gets kind of a little bit more sugary and high-pitched and I'm like, and I just, this, you know, innocence surrounds me. Oh, what was I doing wrong? You know, innocence surrounds me when I'm walking through the airport. You know, innocence surrounds me, like, walking through so many different public spaces. And, you know, I need to work to become conscious of the vastly different realities that we're all walking, even if we're walking on the same street, which is, again, what Black Lives Matter has been amazing at doing, of really raising up for this nation to look at the vastly different experiences with law enforcement. 
that, for example, white and black people have. Zara says the goal is to move us out of this place of the individual, because when we get stuck there, which our culture supports, it's much more difficult to face the larger social constructs that keep racism and white supremacy alive. As an educator, you know, one of my long-term goals is to want people from all different backgrounds to have their like curiosity and courage and compassion stoked to want to be in these dialogues that can be transformative in an ongoing way, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of their lives or like for the long haul because we're talking about long haul struggles, you know, and what mm-hmm. are the ways that, you know, we need all of us to come together of building, you know, power and courage together to try to transform society in all different kinds of ways, you know, and we live in such an individualistic society mm-hmm. that, you know, it's no wonder also that you know, a lot of people will retreat to just an individual place. And when we're talking about structural racism, that's not resolvable at the level of the individual. Like, you can do a lot of work to try to purge prejudices and bring things to light, and that's great, but that's a different type of work where we're working in collectives and Mm -hmm. across differences um, in solidarity. In order to do this, there's a lot of work we each need to do internally and together. So one of my biggest fears as an educator is that, you know, people will recoil and not want to be in those conversations because uh, it's just linked with overwhelm and intolerable emotions, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's such a valuable practice to kind of keep turning towards (laughs) what we're socialized to want to turn away from. And maybe we all need to be reminded that this learning is messy, it's awkward, it's super uncomfortable, and we're going to mess up. I'm so grateful that there was people who met me where I was at, you know, to help me, like, come to another step and, like, hold up mirrors and hold me accountable, you know, so that I could keep growing and learning. Because it's easy to think back, like, I could have gotten really shut down. (laughs) And then... What good is that? I would be then one more (laughs) white person who's not, you know, struggling to be active in this huge healing process, you know, which really needs all of us. This is a challenging time, and I'd like to trust that we're getting at some really deep wounds flushing out more of the toxins, applying more balm. This isn't pretty. This doesn't feel good. But it's necessary. So try catching yourself when you want to exercise your privilege to check out. What kind of support do you need to stay? This episode was produced by me, Lily Sloan. Thank you, Zara Zimbardo, for sharing your wisdom and for the work you do. You can learn more about the White Noise Collective at conspireforchange.org. Thank you, Christine Hutchison, for sharing your post and reading it for me. Thank you to the people who showed up to the march in San Francisco Saturday and let me chat and chant with you. And thank you for listening. Please share with anyone and everyone. Follow on social media and leave a review in iTunes so people can find the show.